Thank you. Let's turn to the Lord's Word tonight to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And we'll read the first 32 verses. May the Lord speak to us through His Word as we read the Lord's Word together. Acts 5 verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained... Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and gave fear, great fear, came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed Every one. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, 
and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Amen. We'll end our reading right there. May the Lord in his grace minister to your heart through the reading of his own word this evening. Shall we stand a moment to pray? Father, thank you for your goodness and the blessings we have in personal faith, personal relationship with our Lord Jesus. Come and fill our hearts tonight. Oh, Lord, we, we pray for help to minister one to another to encourage one another in the Lord, and that this chapter we turn to will open up to us the ways of the Lord to our souls. Give help. Give your blessing now in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. The book of Acts chapter 5, and tonight the message is on the preaching that gets you into trouble. The preaching that get you into trouble. When we read the book of Acts, our mouths water. We are kind of sorry that we hadn't lived in that era when the church came into existence, when there were many conversions, when there was preaching that was with great power, the devil was defeated, and there were great things happening. The word great seems to come up over and over they had great prayer meetings. The apostles preached with great boldness. There was great joy within their hearts. And six particular events contributed to all of this. The first one, of course, is Pentecost. Then there was the healing of the lame man at the gate of the temple. And then there was the persecution that drove the Christians to prayer. 
and that added to the burden of prayer and to the many answers to prayer. In this chapter we read in chapter 5 of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. They had lied to the Holy Ghost. They had sought to bring uh, part of their offerings to the Lord. They lied about it and they were smitten dead one after the other and were told that great fear came upon the church and all that had heard these things. And then in chapter 5, 16, you will see the mass multiple healings that were provided when they were bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed every one. Can you imagine that? A hundred percent cures. Every single one that was brought to the apostles were marvelously healed. That was phenomenal and it created a tremendous buzz for the ministry of the gospel. Number six is the great escape from the prison. How they were told not to preach again in that name. They were locked up until the morning and by the time the morning came they sent for them but they were all gone and they were back in the temple preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now this desire to live in such times and to witness the power of the gospel at work in his church, it might drive us to say, well, can we not see such miracles again? Could we not see healings and lame people jumping and praising God as that man did at the temple gate? Well, there are two schools of thought in this whole matter of miracles today. There are what we call the continuationists, and they fully believe that it is right to seek such miracles as we read of here in the book of Acts in every era of the church, whether it's the first century or today in the 21st century, that we should be praying for miracles of healing and for these apostolic gifts to be given. Then there are the cessationists, that these things have ceased in the church since the passing of the apostles. Now, I think the very best argument for cessationism, that these things have ceased, is that we do not read of them anymore as we go through the New Testament books. Now, Corinth, people might say, well, there's tongues again. But I'll beg to argue that the tongues in the book of Corinth is not the same tongues as in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 was evangelism to reach men with the gospel. Corinth was tongues where they had a cosmopolitan city, where people of different languages were worshipping together. And Paul's rule was not without an interpreter. And if it can be interpreted then it's an earthly language and it is to minister the word of God unto men. Now, in the New Testament, not all were healed. Even Paul the Apostle had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed about it. The Lord said, no, I'm not going to take it away, but I'll give you the grace to bear it. We read of Epaphroditus, who was Paul's companion fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. 
And Paul said in Philippians 2.26, For he longed after you all, was full of heaviness, because that ye have heard that he had been sick. But there's not a word about his healing. There's not a word about him uh, mightily raised up from the bed of sickness. And it's said in the next verse, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, not only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. And so that was a grievous situation. Paul is on his journeys, he's visiting churches, and Trophimus, who is with him, but he can't go on. He's too sick. He's not able to continue. And so he has to leave him in the hands of others in his sickness. So we do not see in the New Testament, in these later passages, that there were the same miracles of healing. When you get to the book of James in chapter 5, what are we to do when someone falls sick? Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if he have confessed sin, uh, it shall be forgiven him. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But it's the church at prayer. It is not apostles, individuals with particular gifts of healing or life-giving or any such thing. But the thing that I do notice, the thing that never changes in the New Testament is the preaching. The ministry of the Word is constant, and it, by God's power, works miracles in people's lives, miracles of conversion, miracles of salvation, lifting them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so tonight, as we come to this chapter 5, we're going to look at the preaching that gets us into trouble. There are many that get into the ministry and they want to avoid trouble. But we must remember that we're sent to turn the world upside down. We're not called to to, uh, keep the status quo. We can't leave Orlando the way we find it. We've got to be working that God will turn men from sin, from the world, from the paths of destruction, and be brought into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now, a few pointers here. Look at verse 20, and you'll see that it was commissioned preaching that got them into trouble. Go, stand and speak in the temple. Now, remember, these are the apostles who were told by authorities to be silent. Preach no more in that name of Jesus. And now they were told by uh, the angel, go, Stand and speak in the temple. And at that point, uh, with all authority, they say, we must obey God rather than man. And so we have here this compulsion to preach. And there was a must go and make the gospel known. And that ought to be in the heart, in the soul of every gospel preacher and in the witness of every gospel church. We are here not to be silenced. We are here not to keep the things as they are, but to serve God faithfully. We must obey the law of the land as far as 
we possibly can, but we must also obey the law of God. And for that, every preacher needs faithfulness, courage, and boldness. Now, as you go through the Bible, you will find that there were many that were sent by God, and they had to be strengthened and encouraged. I think of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1 verse 6 we read, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee. Now that should be like a tonic to the preacher. That should put new boldness and new authority within his heart. He's sent, but he's also going to be helped, and the Lord will be with us. Think also of Joshua as he was called to fill in for for Moses and to step into the gap there. And he was told in Joshua 1, Be of good courage. Over and over he was called to be of good courage. So the Lord doesn't call us to be wimps. He doesn't call us to be little puppets, but rather to be bold and forthright in our declaration of this preaching of the gospel. Now, how we do this in the church, of course, it's pastoral work. It is to be winning. It is to be wise. It is to be Christ-like, full of grace. The savor of Christ must fill our hearts, but we must not lose the passion to reach men and women with the gospel. How we do this outside the church, there ought to be a burden. There ought to be a love for souls that gives us a passion that we don't see men as trees walking, but as living souls who need the Savior. And when you go about your community, and of course when you come and spend a few weeks here, we realize Orlando is a very big place, and there are many communities within it. And when you go about your daily life, and you meet with people and families and souls and children, oh, what a burden we ought to have. I know in Canada, uh, the education system, where there's no more Bible in schools, the law of God, the commandments, no more toleration for those things. And there is a perversion of sex education and a drive, a very wicked drive, uh, to fill the minds of young people with those things that are so vile. They're unspeakable. And that's the age in which we live. There ought to be a passion and a burden that we might reach them with the gospel. Now, if you go down to verse 28, you will see that it was Christ-centered preaching that got them in trouble. It says here, uh, did we not straight, did we not, did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, did you notice this? And should, that ye should not teach in this name. Now, it's hard to tell just how 
intently these religious biased leaders listened to the sermons of the apostles, how closely they took it in. But the thing that irritated them, the thing that got under their skin, was they, they continually referred to this man called Jesus. They continually referred to the history of the one who died on the cross. There's reference here to his blood. They must have referred to his resurrection. Indeed, that was a constant theme in the book of Acts, that he's risen, he's Lord, he's coming again, he's got all authority, he's the judge of men. And that's the thing that irritated and burdened those that opposed the gospel. And you can go on through the book of Acts into Romans and all the way to Revelation. And the message of the New Testament apostles was him. It was him. It was constantly the person of the Lord Jesus. And of course, the Jew and the Jewish mindset would not accept that he was the Messiah. And that was the thrust of their argument, always seeking to prove that he's the one, he's the anointed one, he's the sent one, he's the one that was expected for all the history of our nation, and now he's come, believe on him. And that is what got them into trouble. Now, in our society today, it's not much different. If we preach societal issues and preach on human needs and preach love, kindness, gentleness, and those things, well, you can get by in a wicked society. But when you face men and women and, and, and visitors for the first time, and you face them with their need of the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, that's what gives offense. That, because there's something about the name of Jesus. Now, to us, it's beautiful. To us, it's powerful. It's, there's no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. I remember being a newborn convert, working on the farm on a Sunday morning, and I heard that hymn, uh, the, the Old Rugged Cross. And the name of Jesus was a sweet name to me. That's how I knew I was converted. But to the unconverted, that name, when it is used in reverence, is a name of reproach. And it goes right back to that enmity of the serpent. And there is in the heart of every unconverted person a hostility, a natural inborn hostility to the name of the Lord Jesus. But of course, our job is to keep preaching Jesus and telling men their need of him. And they don't need to just know about him they need to know him personally. When I was newly converted, one of the persons I first witnessed to was my aunt. She was also known in our family circle as a very religious, churchy person. So I thought she was an easy strike. Just go and talk to her about the Lord and she'll just open up with open arms and so on. And in many ways she did. She was willing to talk. But being so churchy, um, you know, when you would ask her, do you know the Lord Jesus? Well, that was a different question. And is he your Savior? And she could talk about, well, she was a Methodist. She could talk about preachers and about different things in the church and events and so on. But do you know the Lord Jesus? That 
was different. And by the way, I gave her a book by J.C. Ryle on the new birth. And I believe that through that she came to know the Lord. I knew there was a change. And the Lord certainly used that. And that's the thrust that we need. And it gets us into trouble. Because people will shove us away. They will not want us to come close, pressing them with a personal relationship in the Lord Jesus. Now, number three, the thing that gets us into trouble is doctrine. It was doctrinal preaching that got them into trouble. Look at verse 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. There's teaching. And then on down in verse 28 again, Ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. So, doctrine means that you're concluding. That you're not just throwing out facts. You are concluding things. If this is true, then what about you? And it is laying it on the line. Truth upon truth, precept upon precept. And I'm sure that they got to the precious gospel doctrine of the substitutionary atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can't preach the gospel without that doctrine. There's reference there in verse 28 that they are seeking to bring this man's blood upon us. And I'm sure they made a lot of reference to the sacrifice the bleeding sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, the substitutionary sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And as they went on and on and on about Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice in the place of sinners, they felt this was doctrine. This was concluding the matter. And it was laying a tremendous weight of guilt upon them. Now, preaching the Lord Jesus is a vast study. In Bible college, seminary, uh, the course usually crams it into one year. One year on Christology, the person work of Christ. Now, I am preaching now 40 two years from my first pastorate. By the way, I got two brides in one month. The month Bill and I were married was the month I took up my first church as a student pastor. Over there in those days, they had never enough preachers. And when you finished one year in the Bible college, uh, you were eligible uh, to be placed in a congregation. That happened to Mr. Cranston, and that's what happened to me a year after study. And in fact, if I remember right, Mr. Cranston was placed in a church before he even got going. He may have been a month or two, but he certainly had not yet completed a full year. And so in all of these years of preaching and in all of these years of teaching, I cannot say that I have mastered Christology. I'll never live long enough to be an expert on Christology. 
we will be out into eternity learning from the Lord himself and learning more of the wonders of our precious Lord and Savior. And gospel preaching is all about Jesus. It's all about his love, his grace, his sufficiency, his deity, his godhood, his perfection, his tenderness, his love, his friendship. And we just love to preach on and on about our Lord Jesus. But how upsetting it was to these religious cohort of people, they hated it. And how sad tonight there's people all around us that just don't want to hear of the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus. It is indeed a tragedy. Now, number four, it was convicting preaching that got them into trouble. Bring you back again to verse 28, that you bring this man's blood upon us. Now, that could have been applied personally, or it could have been as a nation and indirectly. I'm not sure of everyone that Peter uh, was preaching to uh, and John were preaching to at this time that everyone were present at the cross. Everyone stood at Pilate's gate and shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. But as a nation, and you remember, was it someone, Caiaphas, or whoever said, Let this man's blood be upon us and the guilt of it. And these apostles preached with deep conviction, and they were made uncomfortable. Look at verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And you'll see that in verse 30, the message pointed hearers to the living Christ, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. There's conviction. They didn't let them off the hook. They didn't say it doesn't matter. It doesn't say go your way and don't think about it. No, they led it on. The blood of Jesus was upon this people and they brought conviction. And uh, we see uh, that this uh, was powerful preaching and they brought deep conviction for sin upon them. And of course, we rightly today preach that it was our sins that nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross. And we've got to tell sinners that their sin is a horror in the sight of God and that they nailed Jesus to that tree and to that cross. And so the message was very pointed and it brought deep conviction. Now, there was need for repentance and there was need to seek the pardoning power of the Lord. If you could verse 31... Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's the conclusion. No preacher has the right to stop before he preaches the mercy, the forgiveness, the pardoning power of the Lord Jesus. You don't tell someone he's guilty and leave him there. You tell him the mercy of God and all the grace of God that is in the Lord Jesus. And then Peter took a stand. In verse 32, we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost. We have a divine helper. They weren't saying these things alone. And it's great to know that as we go forth with the gospel, that we're not alone. 
We're not alone as a, as a preacher or as a congregation. We're not alone as a denomination in this big country that God has called us to witness in. We have the promise of the help of God the Holy Ghost. And he's at work in the world. It's his work to convict of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. It's his work to bring men to the place where they cry out, What must I do to be saved? It's the work of the Spirit to prepare men for the hearing of the word. And we pray for that. And we seek to labor together in the enabling power of God the Holy Ghost. And you can see that these men were, they were unapologetic. They were not changing a whit. And they weren't backing off. They presented the gospel in its fullness and with power. Some people have a difficulty in the term apologetics. And it does seem to be a little bit strange uh, that there are people in Christian ministry and they make a study out of apologetics. Now, it really comes from Peter's testimony that men ought to be able to give an answer uh, for the hope that lies within them. And that answer is apologē in the Greek language, from which they get apologetics. It does not mean we apologize. It means we defend. And we hurled this gospel to the ends of the earth. And in the gospel, we have facts, figures, dates, science, logic, all on our side. And we put all of that ammunition into the gospel gun and let it fire. And we preach the truth in all its fullness and pray that God in his grace will bring sinners to the Lord Jesus. And we need to be totally committed to this work. The preaching that's always going to get us into trouble. And the day that free Presbyterians are not in trouble is the day when we have no ministry left. Dr. Paisley used to say, there's peace in the graveyard, but there's no peace in the church when you're fighting sin and the devil. And we can't expect that the devil's going to leave us alone, and we can't expect that carnal, sinful men are going to be wringing their hands and saying, oh, we're so thankful you've come and included us. No, there's going to be opposition. But we need to pray for grace to stand out and stand up for the Lord Jesus and to be counted for him. And on the eternal day, there will be a wonderful reward. Now, I am thankful tonight that I have had the privilege of serving within the Free Presbyterian Church really from my conversion. I was converted in Oma Free Presbyterian Church September 1st, 1976. That's the church where Beulah's dad was the founding elder. He's still an elder there. He's 93, 94 now. But uh, in 1968, Dr. Paisley was invited to come and preach the gospel. They put up a thousand-seater tent and filled it for six weeks night after night after night for six weeks, five nights a week, and Sunday afternoons he would come. Now our farm was just across the river from that, that site. And my dad, uh, I remember him bringing it out, and we stood at the gable end of our farmhouse, and we could hear the echo of Dr. Paisley's preaching at the end of our farmhouse. 
Now, I didn't learn from that what he was preaching, but we heard his voice. And I didn't go to those meetings. But it was after the founding of that church that I heard the gospel and was saved and was, within a few years, attending the Whitfield College of the Bible or the Theological Hall, along with the Reverend Reggie Cranston, who was the student pastor in the church at that time. Now, I'll tell you another little story. I was, uh, let me see, 21 years old. I was a farm boy, and we had some frosty mornings, and we would travel together 70 miles from Uma to Belfast to Dr. Paisley's church where we met for classes. And Mr. Cranston, who was not a farm boy, not young as I was, um, he seemed to me to be an older man at that time, I had great respect for him. But when I got into his little car, it was roasting. And we traveled 70 miles, and I was sweating all the way. He loved the heat, and I was not used to it at all. And the Lord gave me the privilege of serving with such men. And then, of course, uh, to come to Canada and uh, to plant a new church. What a privileged people we are to be among uh, men of God. We are not popular, we're not famous, but praise God we're seeking to be faithful and to hold the standard for the Lord. And we're just thankful that it's a life well lived. Uh, only one life and only what's done for Jesus will last. It's a life well lived. So don't look back. Press on. And may the Lord keep us unto the end, as he will. As he's told us in John 13, 1, having loved his own, he will love us to the end. Hallelujah. May the Lord put that joy in your soul tonight. Let's close in prayer. We'll give our thanksgiving unto the Lord. Our Father, we praise thee for all your love to us, for all your blessings to us, and for this privilege to be called to preach the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in a denomination where we have the freedom to preach Christ, where we have exhortations to preach on, and where we have the prayers of God's people. Thank you, Lord, for your people here. Thank you for the witness of this congregation. And Lord, we know that this, this city is lost and in darkness. Multitudes need the Savior. O oh Lord, may you be pleased to bless the witness, the labors of your people in this congregation, to gather in the lost. Bring them in, Lord, out of the highways and the byways. Bring them in, and may sinners hear the good news that Jesus saves. We pray for your keeping power upon your people in their going out and coming in. We think of that Psalm 121, that you are the Lord that neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so we pray that you'll watch over your people night and day, that you'll bless them in their work, bless them in their schooling, bless homes, bless marriages, bless the boys and girls. O oh Lord, it is thy blessing we seek and covet earnestly. Give traveling mercies this week, Lord. 
be with us and bless us until we meet again. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with your redeemed now and evermore. Amen.